You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. This is Israel's 75th anniversary. And uh, I want to give, start the program with some statistics. When the State of Israel was founded back in May 15, 1948, there were 800,000 people living here, both Arabs and Jews. Of course, uh, uh, today, we, we now have 9.7 million people. Now, it's interesting. In those 75 years, the number of people in Great Britain grew by 37%. The number of people living in France grew by 67%. In those same number of years, the number of Israelis grew by 1,300%. At that time, 1948, 6% of the Jewish people were living in in Israel. Today, they're roughly 45% of the Jewish people, which, by the way, when we approach uh, the 50% number, hopefully it'll bring all kind of religious and halachic problems, but that's a story unto itself. In, in other words, in those 75 years, the number of Jews outside of Israel has diminished, Israel has become the center of the Jewish world. Now, also in that time, back in 1948, the uh, uh, income per person was less than $1,000. Today, it's approximately $50,000. At that time, when the state was founded, we had essentially an agricultural society, society, a closed socialist society, and today we are a high-tech giant, still growing. The, uh, we have a greater income per person than the British or the French. The, uh, at that time, in 1948, There were a couple of hundred students in institutions of higher education in Israel. Today, there are more than 350,000 students. And interestingly enough, a couple other numbers which I find uh, not only interesting, but almost amusing. Uh, At that time, when the state was founded, there were about 20,000 automobiles in the country, Today, there are approximately 3.8 million automobiles in the country, which, by the way, is, is uh, for a small country, this is a problem unto itself. It has to be resolved. The roads are really crowded, for, particularly in the center of the country. The, at the time was, the state was founded, there were five countries, Muslim countries, Arab countries, around us, who invaded us. Today, the three of those countries have come apart, and two of the others have peace agreements with Israel. And we also had, uh, we have now 
the peace agreements with uh, four other Arab countries, and Israel uh, has peaceful relations with several others, even though we don't have diplomatic relations. So that little country that was weak 75 years ago has grown into a military and high-tech giant, and hopefully we have the good sense to keep it going. And one of my things I always repeat is the fact that for 2,000 years, the Jews' only experience was running Jewish communities and synagogues. When they finally have a country, they run it with the, uh, the same way they ran the synagogues and uh, the same way they ran Jewish communities. And that kind of thing simply doesn't work for a high-tech giant today. And that's one of the problems we have with our government. But that's a, uh, that's a story unto itself. Incidentally, when David Ben-Gurion was preparing to deliver the Declaration of Independence on that Friday afternoon, he called in the chief of operations of the Israeli Defense Forces. At that time, his name was Yigael Yadin. He's a noted uh, archaeologist. And he asked him squarely, what, our chan- what are our chances of surviving the Arab army's invasion? And he said, Yadin said, our chances are even. Still, Ben-Gurion made the declaration, despite the news of the fall of the Edsheim blocks, uh, which is about uh, 15 miles south of Jerusalem, and all the defenders, 120 of them, were massacred by the Jordanians and the local Arabs. And at that time also, the Secretary of State of the United States, George Marshall, said that I, as a general, think that uh, you will be destroyed. He told that to the first foreign minister of Israel, Moshe Sharet. Now, in Israel indeed suffered very heavy losses. Thank God it wasn't destroyed. It defeated its invaders, and it went on to become what it is today. At that time, in 1948, Israel had approximately 50,000 soldiers. Today, there are about a half a million regular and reservist troops, besides millions of older Israelis who are equally experienced and trained because they have served in the army. Israel's military budget is the 15th highest in the world. Its military exports are the 12th highest in the world, and the the Air Force is ranked by the World Directory of Modern Military Aircraft is the sixth most powerful in the world. So, as I said, the the Jewish population went from 600,000 to more than 7 million, and the overall population multiplied, as I mentioned previously, that the uh, Israel's birth rate today is the highest in the developed world. It's quite interesting, by the way. The Jewish birth rate in Israel is the highest in the world, and the Arab birth rate, which is high, is lower now than it was at the time that the state 
uh, uh, was founded. And fertility today, when you talk about the birth rate, you're not talking about the ultra-Orthodox. Secular people, lawyers and doctors and bankers and engineers and female pro uh, pro uh, professional bear an average of 2.9 children. And this is opposed to the rich world's average of 1.6. So, the, according to the demog demographers, the high birth rate reflects an interesting thing. It reflects optimism. Now, the second engine of Israel's population growth is not simply birth rate, it's immigration. The absorption of huge numbers of new arrivals by the veteran population uh, is something that has no equivalence elsewhere. The immigrations were also a big social success. Millions acquired an education that their parents had no chance to obtain in their native countries, and they climbed from the working class to the middle class. And there is some very senior bankers here in Israel, some very rich people in Israel. And some of them are products of the immigrations from the Middle East, from poor countries. Interestingly enough, the Israeli Defense Forces has also reflected this mobility. Five of the chiefs of staff over the past 40 years have come from families from Middle Eastern immigration, as well as two of its Air Force commanders and three of its Navy commanders. Now, it is true that we have a large, had a large, have a large immigration from the former Soviet Union, and they're not uh, big military men from that uh, Soviet um, immigration. But there are speakers of the, of the Knesset, ministers of defense, finance, foreign affairs, interior, transport, and health from children from those countries. The interesting enough, and it's very recently, the recent immigration from uh, uh, Ethiopia uh, has produced a, a number of ministers of absorption. So, the, uh, the impoverished mini-state of 1948, made up of refugees and survivors, has become over 75 years of hard work so prosperous that its annual per capita product is a little over $55,000, 12th highest in the world. It's higher than Canada, Sweden, Germany, and Japan. And also, we have for now diplomatic recognitions with a number of countries which were at war with us when we came into being. The, the East Bloc, the Russian Bloc in Europe, which armed Israel's enemies and actively fueled their hostility, has vanished. Moreover, its former members have established ties with Israel, like and, and also China, India, almost all of Africa, and all of Africa. 
the in the Arab world, the groundbreaking peace with Egypt proceeded to four more Arab states, and at least four others are also dialoguing and trading with what they once called the Zionist entity, which reflects a pan-Arab fatigue with the Palestinian problem and a quest to accommodate the Jewish state. So this has been an incredible 75 years, one of the most incredible 75 years, if not the most incredible in Jewish history. Now, the one of the challenges we have now is to spread Israel's economic success to all parts of Israel society. That will require leading Arab women and ultra-Orthodox men to go to the workplace where their current participation rates are not high. Arab women, uh, 40% of them work, and the ultra-Orthodox, 50% of the men work. The uh, Above all that, and many people have pointed this out this week, there is a challenge of creating a social contract. The uh, Many of the the communities simply don't get along with each other the way they should. See, we want all the citizens to participate in the state's defense, its education, its infrastructure and welfare benefits in return for civic contribution, either through national service, either uh, the social work, for example, or the military, and of course, as taxpayers. Now, it's very interesting, by the way. Um, uh, things have changed. When, I, when we first came to Israel, my kids were very small. My daughter was four and a half years old. My son was two and a half years old. We had two children after we came to Israel. And uh, both my sons, of course, served in the army. And both of my daughters did what's called national service. They worked essentially as social workers, either in health institutions or in schools. That's what both of my daughters did. At that time, the more religious girls, and I use the word more religious in a general sense, religious girls in those days, uh, you know, uh, uh, back in 1969, 50 years ago, uh, religious girls uh, felt that they had a responsibility and their families felt they had a responsibility to contribute to the country, but they didn't go into the army. They did social welfare service, which uh, really had an interesting effect on many of the girls. One of my daughters uh, did her national service in a health institution. As a result, she uh, was influenced to become a nurse, which she is today. One of my daughters, the other one of my daughters, did a national service in an educational institution, and she became a teacher. So the work that they did as part of their national service influenced the careers they chose in their private lives. Today, it's quite different. I have a uh, all my granddaughters, 
have uh, served in the army, and uh, the uh, one of my granddaughters is a major in the army. Something that uh, would have made my grandfather very happy. He was a private in the Tsar's army back in uh, in uh, 1890. So uh, I uh, I served in the Israeli army starting at the age of 37. Uh, I did my uh, national duty every year until I was 53 years old, and I rose to the rank of corporal. And now I have a granddaughter who is a major in the army. So in, in that sense, my own personal story is the story of Israel. Interestingly enough, the uh, back in those days, the, uh, the religious girls were uh, pretty much influenced not to go into the military service, but they had to do national service one form or another. In the health industry, teaching industry, and so forth, today it's uh, much more common for religious girls to indeed go into the army. And as I said, my uh, a number of my uh, granddaughters have served in the army. One of them was uh, just released uh, uh, recently, and is now a student at. Uh, University studying law. So it's very interesting what the state of Israel has done as a state and what it's done for the Jewish people and for the attitudes of the Jewish people. When I was a kid to see that uh, it was during the Second World War, there were many Jewish soldiers, but after the war, many of the people I knew didn't serve in the army in the United States, they were students. Students were exempt from the army. When I was a student, uh, I was exempt, and then I became what's called 1A, eligible for the draft in the United States. And uh, it's interesting enough, I, I may have mentioned this in the past, uh, I was turned down by the American army because uh, I, uh, when I took the physical for the army, I was rejected because of my eyesight. And when I came to Israel, I was called up to take the uh, test for the military, and I passed. I remember at the time that I was sort of surprised. I was pleasantly surprised because I wanted to do my duty. I wanted to serve. But uh, when I was told uh, that I had passed, and by the way, in Israel, you don't get a letter telling you you passed. They tell you on the spot. After you finish the physical and they check out all the records, they said, okay, you're going to serve. So when I was taken into a room, which is a story I may have told on this program in the past, but just tell you the highlight, uh, this young uh, girl soldier said to me, congratulations, you've passed. And I, one of the things I said to her was, yeah, I'm really glad I can serve, but how is it that the American army turned me down and the Israeli army which has such a reputation, they had just won the Six-Day War. I said, how come the Israeli army, which I heard so much about, is willing to take me, who had been turned down by the American army? And the, this young girl soldier said something classic to me. I still remember, it was on a Friday morning. 
he said to me, why did the American army turn you down, Mr. Shapiro? And I said, they turned me down because of my eyesight. eyesight. And she leaned across the desk and she said to me, let me explain something to you, Mr. Shapiro. And this is true, I'm not making this up. I couldn't make something like this up. She leaned across the desk and she said to me, Israel has enemies and the United States has enemies. The enemies of the United States are far away from the United States. You need good eyes to see them. Here you won't miss a thing, unquote. That's what this is. young girl soldier said to me on a Friday morning in 1973, and she was 100% right, unfortunately. Anyhow, uh, I will, that's enough for this uh, portion of the program. I'll be back after the break. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. Want real answers to the big questions of life? Who am I? Why am I here? How can I find lasting happiness? If God is good, why is the world so bad? Don't miss Soul Talk with Rabbi David Aaron. Revealing, inspiring, empowering. Thursdays on Israel News Talk Radio. You're back with Jay Shapiro. Since this week is Israel's 75th anniversary, I want to say a few more words on that theme. This is a time of rejoicing, and we really have to count our national blessings. Life in Israel, I believe, is full of meaning and also some very delightful moments. There is sacrifice, there is commitment, there is achievement. The crucial ingredients that make life satisfying and exciting and uniquely so for Jews who have long awaited a national return to Zion. We have personal and national blessings, and life is full of meaning. Now, the Jewish people for 2,000 years had no national home. Instead, it suffered diaspora, dispersion, degradation, and disaffiliation, and even near extermination back between 1940 and 1945 in my own lifetime. Now, there are have, there have been attempts to annihilate the Jewish state itself. Uh, today, that big threat comes primarily from Iran, and Jews are persecuted in some places However, the bottom line is that the people of Israel today are no longer defensive. In fact, in aggregate, Israel is stronger than any of its enemies and stronger than all of its enemies combined. Major military threats for Israel have diminished because Arab societies and armies crumbled across the Middle East. And after the Abraham Accords of several years ago, there's been a change for the better in the region. 
And so things are, thank heaven, looking up. So Israel, in a sense, is doing well in all the battlefronts, although there are obviously inevitable conflicts ahead. There is the problem of the Palestinians, which we see no end to. There's the Iranian threat to Israel, or the very fact that the very area, this part of the world, the Middle East, is sort of unstable, and that isn't good. Now, Israel's hand is always outstretched for peace, and uh, we're always ready for settlement with our neighbors. The, it's interesting, by the way, despite the many current and looming challenges, Israel's drive to succeed is terrific. Spectacular results, outstanding science and top-notch technology, doctors, and first-class health care, Torah study, and we have a vibrant democracy. Certainly there are problems. There's no, unfortunately, with it, but they'll be resolved. Israel enjoys a strong currency. We have a lot of foreign investments. We have very innovative things like uh, water desalinization, national ga- natural gas solutions, and uh, that we give and we sell to other countries. Uh, we have uh, Aliyah and re- immigrant absorption. And we, we have a lot of youth activism, and people by and large are patriotic. When you go out this week, people all over have Israel flags flying on their cars. It's interesting, by the way, I don't recall in America years ago when I was a kid, people really celebrated the 4th of July. But in the later years, the, the Americans don't celebrate the 4th of July they, the way they did when I was a kid. But that kind of spirit still prevails here on Israel's Indi, in, uh, Independence Day. Now, there are all kinds of attacks on Israel which can be defined as soft power, like international campaigns to divest from Israeli companies, to sanction Israel, but most of them have not succeeded. In fact, the Chinese, Indians, Moroccans, the Gulf Arab businessmen, investors, and even Europeans are essentially lining up to buy Israeli technologies, not to boycott them. Israel is a country that has no natural resources. Its only natural resource is the people and technology, and other countries are willing to buy the product of Israel's natural resource, its technology. What I think is more interesting, or just as interesting, is that Israelis are not dispirited by their challenges. They're resilient and they're motivated to build a better future. And this essentially gives people fortitude for the long haul ahead. The uh, vast majority of Israelis believe that the country's successes outweigh its failures. 
the current controversies over judicial reform, Haredi, military draft, religion and state, have rattled elements of national solidarity. There's no two ways about it. But this is reparable. There, there is, we cannot go into some kind of doomsday discourse. The, it's, it's neither accurate nor wise. Israel is far healthier than the work into frenzied judicial reform. I live not far away from the home of the Israeli president, and for weeks and weeks, our street has been blocked by the police while people are making demonstrations either at the president's residence, which is just up the block from my house, or at the prime minister's residence, which is a few blocks away. And now there are counter counter uh, assemblies by people in favor of the reform, but it's all being done peacefully. As a matter of fact, I saw uh, in a paper the other day that uh, one of the protesters, and I don't remember whether the protester was uh, pro-reform or anti-reform, but they arrived at the uh, at one of the demonstrations where there were people demonstrating from both sides, and and one of these uh, protesters uh, saw somebody from the other side who was leaving and asked them if they could have their flag to wave. So the protesters on one side left the protest, gave his flag to the protester from the other side so he could use it in his opposition protest. And that, I find that so amusing and it's so typically Israeli. It has nothing to do whether you're protesting or anti-protesting. You give your flag to another Israeli to enable him to express his opinion. So as I said, Israel is hale and hearty, and there eventually, if disagreements will end, there will be some kind of compromise. The, uh, the, the country, I do not believe, is collapsing. Also, it has been pointed out by a number of people, Israel is more than ever a nation of believers. That's a very interesting point. There's been a renaissance of Jewish identity, which can be heard in the verses of prayer and the popular music. There are uh, all kinds of outdoor Kabbalat Shabbat celebrations just a block away from my house in the public entertainment spaces. And there are all-night Torah sessions on the holiday of Shavuot in a couple of weeks, even in Tel Aviv. A lot of people who are not formally religious, don't call themselves religious, they get together on the holiday of Shavuot for all-night learning sessions, which is absolutely fair. The, uh, it's fantastic. According to the Central Bureau of Statistics, 80% of secular Israelis believe in God. 80%. That he, uh, did interesting. The, the people who define them seculars believe in God, so I'm not sure what the word secular means. They believe in the divine providence over the Jewish people, 
and a divine presence in Jewish history, even though they don't pray on a daily basis or they keep the Shabbat. It's an absolutely unbelievable phenomenon. People who are not observant in the daily issues of observant believe in God. The uh, Now, 20% of the Israelis call themselves Dati, which is national religious, and there's ultra-Orthodox, which are called Haredi. So if you add that to the 40% of Israelis who consider themselves traditional, which in Hebrew is called Masorati, this means that Israel is a deeply believing nation. I don't know if this is true, for example, in the United States. In other words, the bottom line is, while not everybody practices traditional Judaism, just about everybody in Israel senses that this nation is on a grand meta-historic journey which is connected to spiritual powers and moral heritage. They have assets that sustained the Jews through the centuries and brought them home to the land of Israel. It's very interesting, by the way. For many years, I worked for a woman uh, as a contractor. Uh, she had a company that uh, did technical work for several companies, and she was a woman who was not observant in the traditional uh, way of observance. She was not a Sabbath observer, etc., things of that nature, but this woman and her family got together every year on Passover for a Passover Seder. And I asked once asked her about that, and she said, well, that's what Jews do. Is a woman who's what you would call totally secular, but very Jewish. That's, that's unbelievable. Only here in Israel. So, we have an ancient faith, and that explains much about Israel today. It explains the willingness of Israelis to sacrifice for independence. They want to succeed in the arts, the sciences, and more than that, they want to share what they've done with the world. The uh, And also, there is a tremendous attachment in Israel to the city of Jerusalem, our ancient capital. Now, the interesting, uh, this explains why Israeli leaders sometimes refuse to accept rational calculations of cost and benefit diplomatically. Uh, the uh, explains why Israelis can shake off the bleak and sinister uh, predictions advanced by both friends and enemies. Uh, our the American president has not yet invited our uh, elected prime minister, elected after five elections. The American pre- president, who traditionally invite the new leader of the state of Israel to Washington, the American president so far has not done so. So what? What are we supposed to? Uh, most people, it, it, the fact that he hasn't invited the, the, our prime minister, our newly elected prime minister, uh, doesn't seem to bother anybody here. I read the newspapers, I, read, I hear the news here in Israel, and they say, well, 
The American president has not yet invited our prime minister. So what? That's, people hear that and they go about their business. So the, uh, it, it explains why those who consider history only in terms of national politics and international relations underestimate or misjudge Israel because they apply yardsticks of measurement to Israel, but they don't realize the processes at work behind the current state of affairs. Now, the Israel has a deep sense, as I understand it, of historical mission, which blurs the lines between imagination and reality, between the possible and the feasible. People don't understand, I think, that Israel is guided by a calculus that is not always perceptible. We are just different than other people. There's, I, that's the way it is. I, 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 I really can't explain it. Israel had an ambassador, uh, Yaakov Herzog, unfortunately passed away young. Uh, he was a, a rabbi. Uh, he was the son of the, the first chief rabbi of the state of Israel. His name was Dr. Yaakov Herzog. Uh, he passed away, unfortunately young. He passed away in his 50s back in 1972. And he said, and I quote, in the sweep of history, there have been great battles, large transfers and immigrations of populations, bigger construction and technological projects, more eminently impressive displays of might. So, in secular terms, Israel is not that big a deal, but as vindication of spirit, as validation of tenacious faith, as proof of the Jewish people's right to return to their indigenous home, Israel establishment and advancement is a very big deal indeed, unquote. And then he said, history knows no parallel to the prophecies of the Bible, which foretold the breakup of a people into a thousand pieces across the world, yet destined to preserve for centuries and return to their indigenous homeland. This is a defy all odds saga of metaphysical union spanning centuries between a people, their God, and a land. This is a celebration of a nation who at the moment of ultimate nadir, of the devastating, devastating holocaust, rose from the ashes armed with little more than conviction and a historical consciousness that promised renewal to stake claim to their ancestry. This is redemption, providential, and consolation. That is what Dr. Yaakov Herzog said many years ago, and it's true. Of course, we don't yet live in a redeemed world that's been described by the prophets. But, but what it really means, it's our responsibility to help create that redeemed world. It's not going to drop on us from heaven. And on Independence Day in 1999, 
Rabbi Dr. Aharon Lichtenstein, who was the head of one, one or two heads of the yeshiva in Har Etzion, south of Jerusalem, the, he told his students that it was up to them to ensure that the framework for national renaissance created in the state of Israel would be vibrant, value-driven, and meaningful, unless it becomes, God forbid, fossilized and hollow, an outer shell without inner content. And he quoted Psalms, chapter 22, verse 32. It says, they shall come and tell his righteousness to a born nation. We need to have a feeling of destiny, of mission, of individual holiness and national holiness. We must create our state not only as a national political sovereign, a civic entity, but as an entity rooted in redemption from Egypt and Sinai. In the Torah of the prophets, in the ideology of the sages, a nation born with faith and values, we must birth it, we must accompany it, we must shape it, and we must build it. It is this task that should animate us as we tell of God's righteousness in giving us the state of Israel. That was, that was Rabbi Dr. Aharon Lichtenstein in um, blessed memory in 1999. Those words were true then, they hold true today. I'll be back after the break. Warning. Take cover. The Jewish Truth Bomb is here. The show that will explode all the false narratives and fake news. Join host Lenny Goldberg each week as he wires the news together and detonates it through biblical verses that will deliver a shockwave that will blow you away. Don't miss it. The Jewish Truth Bomb. Every Monday. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're back with Jay Shapiro, and uh, I want to touch upon a subject. Uh, I just became aware of it, but I want to share my thoughts with the listeners about the subject. Uh, in current, in the next two months. The current arrangement for drafting people into the army will expire, and the government will have to present an alternative. Now, the problem is that in the present government, the Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox parties, wield a large amount in the governing coalition, and if they pull out of the coalition, the government will fall. The truth of the matter is, I'm not quite sure uh, how much their threats to pull out are, because the truth of the matter is that they never had it so good. So uh, they wield a lot of power in the present coalition, which they never had in other uh, uh, coalitions, and they're ready, I'm sure they're not ready to give that up. However, they're making demands and they brought up an issue that the uh, 
that, for example, uh, the question of judicial reform, I don't really know whether the Haredi, the ultra-Orthodox parties, have that much interest in judicial reform. These parties represent the needs of the ultra-Orthodox community, and they'll pretty much go along with anything the government does as long as the government meets their demands. So um, in order to buy their loyalty, the government will give in to their demands. Now, what's happening is the defense minister and the Israel Defense Forces are promoting at the moment an agreement, an arrangement, in general terms, the, you could describe the arrangement as you serve, you get. In other words, the higher the quality of one's military service, uh, combat or high-tech intelligence duties, the longer one's service will be, and the more generous the compensation for the service. If you're a clerk, let's say, at an army base, your service will be sh relatively short, and you get a standard military salary. If you're a fighter and one of the combat units, you serve for a longer period, and you get financial benefits. A minimum wage for service, study, and uh, purchasing of apartments, for example, and so forth. In other words, if you're a regular soldier on a regular base, you get a certain certain benefits, and you serve a certain amount of time. If you're a combat soldier, you serve longer, and you get more benefits. That is the um, what the government is planning to do within this, the next several months. In other words, as some people have described it, this is in hush money. A writer by the name of Shuki Friedman, uh, who is a president of the Jewish People Policy, Policy Institute, said that he calls this hush money. The... Uh, for this hush money, the Army and the Defense Ministry are willing to advocate lowering the exemption of uh, ultra-Orthodox, lower their exemption age, so that the ultra-Orthodox will effectively be exempt from military service altogether. Now, the non-ultra-Orthodox, uh, or the... I guess I should use the word Haredim, the Hebrew word. The ultra-Orthodox are called the Haredim. The non-Haredim will serve while their sense of injustice and of unequal treatment will be numbed by government money. This is a perfect trade-off for the government. So the, uh, and it will soften public opposition and make it possible to what they will call a historic deal with the Haredim. Among the pro proposal supporters are those who cannot be suspected, suspected of disregarding equality. They admit that the deal is no good, but it takes a, a realistic approach. Past attempts to draft the Haredim have failed, so what they, what they do is make a deal with the Haredim and essentially pay them off not to serve. 
they tell us that the benefit to Israel is that the Haredim will join the labor market earlier. And so according to this deal, if the Haredim are exempted from military service, they'll abandon their yeshivas and enter the workforce, and this will result in a increase in Israel's gross GDP. But the question is, is this correct? It's been analyzed, and it's been found that it may be incorrect. It's a bad deal in terms of values, but also from the cost-benefit perspective, because it's based on faulty assumption. The, the Israel has a people's army, which was built at a time when the entire country was a battlefront, and to a which is still essential for the country's survival. Now, it is true that this people's army concept has been eroded over the years. In the 1990s, the conscription rate among those for whom the draft was mandatory was 75%. But by 2022, it had dropped to 69% for males. Part of the decline is explained by a significant increase in the share of Haredim among conscription candidates. But another portion is due to a decrease in motivation to enlist. This decrease for motivation to enlist is very bad for the state of Israel. The erosion of the people's army manifests itself in public attitudes. For example, the Israel Democracy Institute did a survey in 2021 and it found that 47%, that's close to 50% of Israeli Jews believed that compulsory conscription should be abolished and that the army, the Israel Defense Forces, should be professional. 42% oppose such a move. Not surprisingly, the support of this move that the army should be professional and not everybody should be drafted has a 80% approval among the Haredi, the ultra-Orthodox population. Now, what's going to happen, rather than fighting this trend, This new proposed deal will significantly exacerbate it. While today there is a demand, at least in principle, for equality in burden sharing, the deal will extinguish that too for a handful of shekels. Imagine a teenager who gets his notice to come to the army. Let's say he's somebody who's now 18 years old. He lives in a materialistic society and his life revolves around social media and images that have nothing whatsoever to do with the state of Israel, its values, and its troubles. Unfortunately, a generation, or perhaps several generations, are being raised uh, while holding their phones to their ears and to their eyes, and they don't have the idealism that previous generations had. Now, these young people will look at the news 
and they'll see how the ultra-Orthodox go about their business without any commitment to serve and put themselves at risk. So if this student, who's now 17, is from an affluent background, what incentive does he have to show up at the induction center? And who exactly will show up? So those who show up will be those for whom the financial benefits beckon. People from poorer homes, people from development towns who see that they can do pretty well by being in the army and do even better if they go into combat outfits will be glad to go into the army. So what will happen, and this is what what I'm afraid of, that the Israeli army will go from being the army of the people, a people's army, to a poor people's army. The ability to attract the best of our youth to the army's essential combat and technological units will simply not exist. The worse the problem gets, the more the state will have to pay in order to maintain an army that will become more and more to resemble a professional military, something that almost no serious expert thinks is possible in Israeli reality. The Israeli reality has been, until now, that the youth of all levels of uh, economic background serve in the army and share the responsibility. But if you if this new law is passed and people are paid by the army more to be in military service, well, they can make a lot more money even than the army can afford to give them. They can make it more, more money in the private sector. We'll end up with a professional army made up of people from the poorer economic levels of society. Now, the the Haredi, the ultra-Orthodox labor market, will not be able to finance this burden, this budgetary burden. The employment gap primarily affects men, Haredi men, who in yeshiva study primarily Torah, which is fine but they don't learn those subjects which are needed in the market. For those among them who choose to enter the workforce, they'll find it difficult to secure quality employment. In fact, because of the money they receive from the state to stay in the yeshiva, their incentive to go to work is low. So they can find it just not worth it to go to learn a a profession that they can use in the work market. Now, in 20 years, according to the estimates, the Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox, will constitute about close to 30%, about 27% of the Israeli citizenry. As the Haredi population grows and the army-serving population shrinks, it will become harder to recruit soldiers, and those who do serve will cost more money. But the Haredim, barring some drastic change to their way of life, will continue to pay very little in taxes and receive allowances and benefits at high rates. What In this reality, who will fund the security burden, which will be significantly greater than it is today? 
So this proposed change is a huge gamble on the security and the future of the country. Once the people's army model is buried, and we'll end up with a professional army, it'll be very hard to raise it again. By the way, to the best of my knowledge, this is happening in the United States on a different level. I see in the United States, for example, there are all kind of riots in the streets in the, in the major cities in the United States. Those people who are rioting, forget what their background is, whether they come from poor families or not, but when I was a kid, when you got to be in the Army aide, you were drafted into the Army. You didn't wander the streets. So America today has a uh, volunteer army, but I think this the fact that it has a volunteer army is reflected. Incidentally, uh, pardon me for the uh, interruption right now in my program. As I was uh, speaking and recording this program, I heard uh, sirens outside, and I stopped my recording to see what's going on. And there, apparently there was a terrorist attack in Jerusalem. I'll find out more about that later, and I'll give you a report on it. So just to finish what I was saying, the, uh, the, the, uh, the country, the one of the things that has kept Israel going is the fact we all share the burden. But in order to sustain the state of Israel, you have to have meaningful service, military or national, for everyone. And core studies and employment training for the Haredim. There has to be an equal sharing of the economic burden and the military burden. And on the values and the value of equality. So this proposed law is going to shift the burden on the poorer people. Israel cannot afford that kind of change. I'll speak more about it as the uh, it looks like the, this will become law, and I want to report back to the listeners on the uh, what I, I just heard outside on a uh, some kind of terrorist attack. Uh, I'll show. I'll be back after the break. Hi, I'm Elizabeth. I'm from Stanton, California, and I love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hi, I'm Andy from Oxford, Germany, living now in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. When I want to get the news from Israel, I listen to Israel News Talk Radio. Hi, I am Leo Yuwono from Indonesia, and I love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hi. I'm Kalikun Letala from Zimbabwe, and I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio. My name is Akira. And I'm Bela Singer from Afrat, Israel, and we love listening to Israel News Talk Radio for the best information on Israel and the Jewish nation. Hello, this is Mudaza Ram, leader of the Jordanian Opposition Coalition from Jordan. As an Arab, I enjoy listening to Israel News Talk Radio for the most updated news about Israel and to follow peace with our friendly neighbors. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I recorded the uh, first portions of my program uh, on Monday. That is on the the 24th in a month, and I'm reporting, I'm recording this particular 
segment on Tuesday because uh, tomorrow is Israel Independence Day and I want to spend time with the family, so I want to finish the program now. At the end of the uh, program, that I, the, the part of the program that I recorded yesterday, I mentioned that there was a commotion outside that uh, there had been some kind of terrorist attack. Uh, I was quite concerned, as in general I am concerned when I hear there's a terrorist attack, it turns out that I got a call from my wife shortly afterwards, and she had uh, been about uh, 100 yards away from where the terrorist attack occurred. So in a sense, all of us are in danger all the time. Incidentally, the, uh, the uh, seven people were wounded in this car ramming, the, victim, the victims include a man in his 70s who's in serious condition now, a woman in her 30s in moderate condition, a man in his 50s, and two 25-year-old men who were lightly win, wounded. And of course, they were taken to Shari Tzedek Medical Center at Hadassah University Medical Center. Now, interesting enough, the terrorist was identified as a Arab of 39 years old, lives in East Jerusalem, he was shot and killed by a civilian at the scene. Many people in Israel, civilians carry guns. Many people are trained in the use of weapons. Many of them are uh, veterans in the army. Interestingly enough, this Arab who decided to kill a bunch of Jews was a married father of five. He was known to the security forces, uh, but apparently he was just driving around uh, in the center of Jerusalem. The attack occurred in the area of Davidka Square, which if you're familiar with Jerusalem, it's really right in the heart of the city, very crowded area. It's right near the Shuk, which is crowded with thousands of people every day. And uh, he, he arrived, according to the paper, and this is sort of standard with these terrorists. And he sped up, he deliberately hit pedestrians, including people crossing the street. When he slowed down and stopped, an armed civilian shot and killed him. And needless to say, the whole area was filled with uh, security forces and off-duty soldiers and the, the security uh, office from the uh, Jerusalem right, uh, uh, light rail and uh, a lot of there were a lot of tourists here now for the uh, for the Israeli Independence Day so they came over because they didn't know they never saw this kind of thing they had to be shepherded away to out to allow evacuation so uh, unfortunately this kinds of things happens and uh, as I said, uh, my wife was just uh, maybe a hundred yards away from the attack, so we are all potential victims, and that's something we have to be aware of. Truth of the matter is, is there's a Hebrew prayer called Hagomel, which you're supposed to say if you've been saved from a uh, dangerous incident, and the uh, 
the halacha, the Jewish law, says that dangerous incidents include crossing the ocean or crossing uh, crossing the desert and a few other things. I remember years ago asking whether I had to uh, say that prayer when I flew across the Atlantic Ocean when I was in a plane that was uh, at all kind of security uh, accoutrements associated with uh, some people do do say this prayer when they travel by air, some don't. Someone once told me, by the way, that um, the question of whether or not you have to uh, say a prayer of being saved from danger depends on whether you can live with the or without the vehicle in which you're traveling. So, of course, years ago, if you were stuck in a desert or in an ocean, you didn't have a vehicle, you were in big trouble. And I think pretty much the same thing holds true for an airplane. At any rate, uh, if you really give it some serious thought, those of us uh, who live particularly in Israel should say the prayer for being saved from danger every single day because not only is the normal problems of traffic and things of that nature, but we have a really difficult, terrible problem of terrorism so if you make it home safely every day, uh, it's worth some kind of a prayer. At any rate, uh, I just wanted to report to the listeners why I stopped the program uh, previously. Now let's go on to the next topic. And the next topic is not really very different. Uh, there is an unprecedented global resurrection or I should say a resurgence of anti-Semitic acts, incitement, and terror. Anti-Semitism is the oldest, longest, most enduring, and most dangerous of hatred. The Erwin Cutler notes that it is a virus that mutates and metastasizes over time but it is grounded in one foundational, historical, generic, anti-Semitic, conspiratorial trope that Jews, the Jewish people, and Israel are the enemy of all that is good and the embodiment of all that is evil, regardless of what moment in time we are experiencing or living in. So, at this moment, we should ask ourselves what we have learned since the beginning, since the State of Israel was founded, and uh, which is founded less than five years after the Holocaust, and what are some of the lessons? So, following the lead of Erwin Cutler, he says that the one of the problems we have is the danger of forgetting and the imperative of remembering. The war against the Jews, which all victims were Jews, but all Jews were targeted. All the victims were not all Jews, but the Jews in particular were targeted victims. But do, it's interesting, what happened during the Second World War was too terrible to believe, but not too terrible to have happened. The demonization and dehumanization of the Jew is prologue and justification for mass murder, 
and unfortunately anti-Semitism is on the rise today. Those people who died were not abstract statistics. There is a name for every person, each person had an identity, is a universe reminding us of the Talmudic idiom that if you save a single life, it is as if you have saved an entire universe. The, the, uh, the Holocaust was a paradigm for radical evil and anti-Semitism is a paradigm for radical hate that must be combated. And now we have a problem of Holocaust denial and Holocaust distortion. And that is happening now, less than, than 80 years after the, the Holocaust. The, uh, the, the danger of silence in the face of evil is our responsibility not to be guilty of. We have to protest against injustice. The dangers of indifference and in, in an action in the face of atrocity and genocide is it falls upon all of us to be aware of the history and the fact that terrible things can happen. The the uh, the what the, what makes the the what makes the Holocaust so horrific among other things the fact it was preventable. Bad things were happening in the world, and good people and so-called good governments did nothing about it. So the uh, the it, that's a terrible thing. You always have to treat speak truth to power. The it's interesting. The Nuremberg trials after the Second World War. If you look at the people who were put on trial. They were the elite of Germany. There were doctors and scientists and judges and lawyers and religious leaders and educators and engineers and architects. In other words, anti-Semitism can filter into every single level of society and every kind of academic background. The, there is a responsible to be aware of this, to bring criminals to justice. There must be no sanctuary for hate, no refuge for bigotry, and no immunity for enemies of mankind. We have the responsibility to see that these things do not happen. The, we really have to worry that this should and try to make this a better world. But if, as I said previously, and it's known to everybody, the, the uh, state of Israel came into being after the most horrific thing that happened to the Jewish people in its history. In less than five years after that, the state was created and fought against all kinds of enemies and Thank God we are now celebrating our 75th anniversary. And as I'm recording this program, it's toward the end of Remembrance Day. Tonight, uh, the uh, 
the sirens will sound and we'll go from remembrance of tragedy to our 75th birthday. And if you really think about it, in the history of the world, 75 years is really nothing. It really is nothing. And it is our responsibility to see to it that the state is strong and remains strong. There is a lot of problems here in the state of Israel, particularly particular problems, the political problems. They will have to be resolved because this is the only Jewish state that we have, came into existence after 2,000 years, and every now and then when you read the daily newspapers and you uh, listen to the daily news, you tend to forget or not think about the fact that we're living in an unbelievable, unprecedented historical time. And we have to take advantage of it and, sit and, and develop the strength to keep it going. It's really important. By the way, the Yom HaZikaron is when I'm uh, making this broadcast and Yom HaTzma'ud, which is tomorrow. Uh, so you have the Remembrance Day for the Fallen and you have Independence Day. They've been um, together since 1950 when the Israeli Army General Staff issued an order declaring the fourth day of the Hebrew month of Iyar, one day before the day in which the state of Israel was established, a day of remembrance for fallen soldiers. <coughs> the linkage between the two dates was enshrined by the Knesset in legislation in the year 1963. And it says the following, the fourth of ER is a day of remembrance for the valor of the warriors of the Israel Defense Forces who gave their lives to ensure the existence of the state of Israel and the warriors who fought in the wars of Israel and failed to bring about Israel's restoration to commune with their memories and recall their acts of valor. The, um, in 1998, the Benjamin Netanyahu's government determined that Remembrance Day today would also commemorate not only the soldiers and not only the people who fell before the state came into being, but the victims of terrorism. Now, over the years, some have suggested separating the two days because of the emotional difficulty in transitioning from personal and collective mourning to national celebration. Now, that is a tremendous uh, challenge to go swiftly from a day of grief to a day of jubilation. The, uh, so the, during this day, when I'm making this broadcast now, Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Israelis go to cemeteries and memorial ceremonies and they stand in silence of memory of the fallen. So today we are a major military power, economic marvel and a technological hub for the entire world. And it is really a wonderful thing. 
According to the Central Bureau of Statistics, 9.7 million, million Israelis inhabit this tiny land, 12 times the country's population of the, of the founding. As I mentioned previously, of these 9.7 million people, 7.1 million are Jewish, 2 million are Arab, and a little more than half a million are other backgrounds. Some 79% of the country's Jewish population are Israeli-born, and today 46% of the world's Jews live in Israel. That is a tremendous accomplishment, miraculous, if I may use the word. Israel's society is vibrant. It has a robust democracy. It's proved by the fact that hundreds of thousands of Israelis go into the streets just about every Saturday night for the last four months, protesting for and against the government's proposed judicial overhaul. And I'm aware of this because I live not far from the Knesset, not far from the home of the president, and not for the home where... Um, the prime minister lives, and uh, during the week, the police have left the barricades set up on the sidewalk so they can pull them into the streets on Saturday night when they're expecting to have all these people for and against. But there has no violence, absolutely no violence in any of these things. So what they are doing is fighting some for the judicial overhaul, some against it. But what they are all fighting, all the sides are fighting for, is to ensure that the country their children inhabit and inherit is better than the Israel of today. That's the. Uh, it was a song years ago called Al Kol Ela, All of These, very famous song, and opening lines in Hebrew. I'll translate it. It goes, for the honey and for the sting, for the bitter and the sweet, for our, our baby girl, please preserve my good Lord. Preserve this. So this is part of the Israeli experience, the honey and the sting, the bitter and the sweet, and they remain so today. So let's, let's, try to do what is required to remain a free people. So I want to say one more thing at the end of the program. Um, uh, there were, I, I, I send this program every week uh, in to be broadcast, and there are people who want to write to me. So you can write directly to me. I'd love to hear from the listeners. You, I have an email address, J.M. Shapiro, J-A-Y-M-S-H-A-P-I-R-O, at yahoo.com. Shapiro at yahoo.com. If you have anything you want to say to me, to agree with me, to disagree with me, or just to express your opinion, I would really appreciate if you would do so. I like to hear from you, and I promise I will answer everybody personally. So, let me wish everyone a happy anniversary, Israel's 75th anniversary, 
and let's hope and pray that things will not only be good, but they'll get even better. Thanks for listening. Until next time, Asia Shapiro, signing off.